0: Hi, I'm Sarah Brown and welcome to the ADHD 365 podcast.
1: responsive equine simulator therapy or rest is pleased to sponsor this podcast about neurological factors associated with ADHD related impulsivity rest simulates a walking horse's gait to reduce impulsivity and anxiety while increasing focus learn more at restbygate.com today i'm with dr connor
0: petros Connor is here with us today after winning the 2018 Young Scientist Award given out by Chad. The awards are given to those who have done research in any area relevant to ADHD. He hopes his research will help us create better models of ADHD, which in turn will help us improve how we evaluate and treat the disorder. Hi, Connor. How are you today? I'm
2: doing really well. Sarah, how are, how are you?
0: I'm good. So, can you explain a little bit about your research and, and in, a, in a way that I can understand? Yeah, yeah for sure.
2: <laughs> one of my primary interests is looking at um, ADHD-related impulsivity. That's one of the big things I'm, I'm interested in, and um, as soon as I got into graduate school, I learned a lot about the importance of understanding what's going on sort of behind the scenes. Um, I, I sort of um, liken that to looking at sort of like looking under the hood of a car um, and learning a little bit more about the driving factors or the mechanisms that are making that car go. Um, and so, you know, throughout uh, the past handful of years, I've looked at lots of different factors. I've focused on uh, what we refer to as neurocognitive factors. A lot of people just call them executive functions. Um, same, same, same thing. Same
0: thing. Okay, um,
2: great. And and I focus on how those relate to uh, or are helpful in predicting um, uh, the phenotype or what the actual kids with ADHD are, are looking like on a day-to-day basis.
0: Uh-huh. And then uh, 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 is there a, a way you hope this information will be applied to the real world?
2: Well, it and it slowly but surely is being applied. Oh, wonderful. Um, so there are, well, to start, there are lots of really great theoretical models on ADHD in terms of what it is and sort of how it manifests and and why it comes about, Um, those models really do intentionally drive the way that we go about treating the disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also been um, a lot of work recently, probably within, my guess would be within the last five or 10 years, looking more at how this research that focuses on executive function deficits can inform intervention. Um, you know that people are trying to work on different programs of research that focus on strengthening some of these executive function deficits. Um, the research is spotty at this point. Right. Um, it's it's not good. It's not bad. Um, generally, what we're finding is kids get better at things you train them to do, but they're having trouble generalizing those to uh, kind of more broad uh, things. So,
0: so when you say generalize those, can you give me an example? Yeah.
2: So, so let's take working memory for example. It's a really widely studied um, executive functioning executive function, particularly in kids with ADHD. Um, and working memory is just that ability to take an in information in your mind and sort of store it for a temporary period of time, manipulate it a bit, and use it to, to solve some sort of problem. Um, and the way that if you really want to boil that down, a way that you can measure someone's uh, working memory ability is if you give them a sequence of numbers and ask them to sort of um, uh, reconstruct those numbers in a particular way. So either organizing them from smallest to largest or from largest to smallest or whoever you want to do it, but it requires that temporary storage and then manipulation of the information. We can get kids to get pretty good at doing that one particular task, but it's not generalizing to using working memory in your daily life when you're out at the grocery store trying to remember what it was that you had on your grocery list. That's, of course, an adult an example. Right. Adult example. But so,
0: so you're saying that if if a child's in school, you can teach them, you know. Uh, to, you know, ask permission to get up and go to the bathroom and do this, but those same steps can't be used to go to the nurse.
2: True. And and part of it, too, is what we're seeing is you can teach them in a confined space, so you can teach them in a research lab uh, on a particular task, but they – they might not be applying that when they're in school. Oh, I see. So it's it's we there's work to be done in terms of that's that's really what the important sort of factor is when you're talking about some of these cognitive functioning um, training programs is um, they're called far transfer effects and really all that means is can you teach someone a very basic skill and have it impact them positively across lots of different parts of their life and right now we can't.
0: We don't know how to train people it, right? to generalize to the generalize. training they get. Right. Gotcha.
2: But there's a lot of work being done to try and figure that out. It's just not been terribly successful at this point.
0: Okay, yeah. good. So can you give us a little introduction? How did you come into ADHD research? Sure. Just a little background?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so so really quickly, currently I'm a I'm a postdoctoral research fellow up at Temple University. Um, I've been in the world of ADHD for At this point now, seven and a half years. Um, And so if we rewind back, um, I I sort of got into the field um, in undergrad and I was exposed to some really interesting um, impulsivity research that sort of got my my gears turning a little bit in terms of stuff that I was interested in and, and stuff that I really found pleasure out of learning more about. Um, and ultimately what happened was I, I combined the, my interest with impulsivity that I learned about in undergrad with, um, uh, my, my general passion for working with, uh, younger kids, mm-hmm. um, particularly younger kids who, um, at this point we're still learning a lot about. My work is focusing a little bit more on what's called white matter. Um, okay. And white matter is really, if you think about it from a, from a network perspective or, uh, yeah, I guess it's it's the connecting pieces that connect the different regions of the brain. Um, so
0: like the wires in a, that's exactly in a right. computer. That's
2: exactly right. Yep. Okay. Um, and the reason I'm interested in that is because, um, like I mentioned, there's been a ton of work in the structural side in terms of gray matter. Um, there's been a ton of work in the functional side, like we were just chatting about.
0: So the the white matter is the wires. Is the gray matter the computer?
2: Yes. That's okay. exactly right. Great. Yep. Um, that's exactly right. And But the, the way that we're able to look at white matter is changing fairly quickly. Quickly over time, and there have been great developments over even the last ten years in terms Uh of approaches that we can use to learn a lot more about the integrity of that white matter. Because as you can imagine, if you have two interconnected regions in the brain, um, you you could look at how those regions are sort of co-activating or how they're doing things at the same time. But uh, more importantly, you should probably look at the pieces that are physically connecting those regions, um, because that can tell you a lot about why they either are corresponding well or are not corresponding well.
0: So let me try to say this in the way that I'm understanding this. So we're having this podcast here, Mm -hmm. and, and you're explaining to me information. But I'm I'm on one side, I feel like on one side of my brain, I'm thinking about what you're saying, but also I'm thinking of all all these questions I have. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the connection between these two parts of my brains and how they work together.
2: Right, exactly. Okay. Uh, An example that I give a lot of times that I think depicts it fairly nicely is, um, let's say you walk into a room and you flip the light switch on. Okay. And the light bulb does not turn on. Uh So now there are a couple of things that could be happening, right? There could be something wrong with the light bulb. That would be the particular brain region, right? There could be something wrong with the light bulb, or there could be a problem with the wire that's connecting the power source to the light bulb. Gotcha. That, that wire is what I'm focusing on, on looking at.
0: So I wonder, you know, uh, you always hear this, oh, ADHD is a fake disease. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong. Yeah. Could it be that that the the issue is that far, this, so small within these connectors that we can't see those issues, so we can't... Prove that it's a, a, a disorder or, a, or an issue? I think
2: that, that sort of thought process, no, that's a really good question because it does come up a lot um, and it varies in terms of how. Uh, uh, adults. I mean, this is a battle you typically have a lot of times with parents at this point, mm-hmm. um, parents or even some some physicians in terms of their their sort of air quote belief in if ADHD is a real disorder or not. And it's hard to really make that argument currently because there's just so yeah. much research that's suggesting this is a real thing. Yes, it is something that's 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 very clearly affecting a good amount of folks. Is it potentially being over or misdiagnosed? Sure, right. I think that's probably you know happening in some cases. But to go and say that it's not a disorder, that's where it becomes really tricky because that, to me, is indicative of someone who hasn't done their homework. Right. Um,
0: Yeah, well, that's good to know. I I always hear this, if we just let them run around, they'd be fine. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I know you can't, you know, how do you respond to that?
2: Well, um, I will say, um, uh, sort of recently, they've been looking a little bit more at how, um, motor activity actually is beneficial for people more generally. Yes, um, not just kids with ADHD, but right. really folks more generally. And they have been trying to apply that to kids with ADHD. I actually um, worked on a study that focused on um, sort of the benefit of of or how how motor activity influences. Um, like self-control or your uh-huh. ability to not respond impulsively, um, and there does seem to be some sort of link there. But there's there's work to be done.
0: Right, um, right. So that did you find a correlation between the two?
2: There's definitely a relationship between uh-huh. the two, um, and there have been, and you know, my memory of course is not going to serve me uh-huh. well at this point, but there have been some really well thought out and well planned studies that have looked at um, the the benefit of sort of low level. Um, physical activity and cognitive improvements, in, particularly in kids with ADHD. So it's something that exists. Now, does it mean they should be sort of f- free-for-all running right. around a classroom or around a house? I don't necessarily think that's the case. But right. if it can be harnessed, um, there are again there are more um, neurological explanations for why that would be beneficial, potentially, right. that in, to allow to engage in a little bit of uh, activity. Heck,
0: yes. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about using... This is kind of a different topic. Mm-hmm. Brain scans mm-hmm. or neuroimaging for diagnosis and treatment of ADHD.
2: Sure. So, so to put it in context, um, the reason I sort of got involved, uh, you, you kind of remember just a couple of minutes ago, I referred to executive functions as neurocognitive factors. Right. The reason they're referred to as neurocognitive factors is because they're really just cognitive processes that have neurological origins. So they, in, they, they originate in the brain. And so you can look at the brain to sort of learn a little bit more about um, the severity of the deficits and, and other sorts of associated factors. So within the past couple of years, I've, I've been a little bit gravitating towards um, learning more about how to use MRIs specifically, um, to learn more about um, brains of folks with ADHD to see how that can um, have some sort of impact on either assessment or intervention. Um, it's just not a new. This is this is nothing new. I mean, MRI mm. has been um, has been used within the realm of ADHD for many years, and uh-huh. um, there's a lot of literature that says. Yeah, there are structural differences in terms of the way that kids with ADHD's brains are developing over time. That looks different than someone who's healthy developing over time. Um, There are functional differences. There are differences in how kids with ADHD, how their brains respond to certain certain stimuli versus how healthy kids are responding to certain stimuli.
0: So can you test that during an MRI?
2: You can. So um, that particular domain is called functional MRI. And so really all you're doing is... you're having uh, a kid per, uh, complete a particular task while they're laying in an MRI scanner, oh, cool. um, and you can look at what's called the bold signal, which is just a—it's just an oxygenation of a particular region—and you're seeing how that response or how that's correlated with whatever task that they're doing.
0: Which types of scans? Now, I, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting from you that you have done the scans in mm-hmm. the past, not recent.
2: You're currently,
0: you're currently using those. So, yeah. um, would they would they be more useful for diagnosing? a A person or treatment?
2: Yeah. This is where we need to be very, very careful. Okay. Um, Scans are great in terms of building, uh, acquiring additional data to help sort of uh, solve this really complex puzzle. Right. Right. the effects, so if you look at um, big studies that have uh, looked at effects across lots of different studies and seen how big the actual difference is between a child with ADHD and a healthy child's brain, the, the effects are not big enough so that you would expect to scan one kid and see that, oh, very clearly this is a kid who has ADHD. We're n- we are not, not there. we yet. are definitely not there. Um, you know, there's, there's a, probably a variety of different reasons for that. Um, but at this point, uh, because those effects are so small, it does not make sense to to scan a kid and, oh. and sort of be able to detect if he has he or she has ADHD. Yeah, I was right? hoping
0: when you were explaining that that would be something we could do, but
2: maybe in the future. In the future, potentially. Um, and I thought a little bit more about that and how how you could apply that. One of the other problems with scanning is it's fairly costly. Yeah. Um, and could you realistically scan every kid's brain to see if they are at high risk or low risk for ADHD? Probably not financially. Right. Um, are there other ways to go around that? Yeah, and that's sort of what we're doing now with neural, with like neurocognitive neuropsychological testing. Mm-hmm. You're sort of tapping into those same uh, neural regions, right. which is using behavioral or cognitive tests to do that. Um, so the question of how to actually apply it and to have it be a really beneficial resource in the future um, is still sort of out there. If you but, but if you step back and think about it from a a cost saved perspective, mm-hmm. if you're able to identify very early on a high risk kid for ADHD and you're able to intervene very early on, okay, let's say the scan costs six or seven hundred dollars. Well, over the course of a lifetime of a kid who has ADHD, particularly if it goes undiagnosed or diagnosed later, right, you're, that $600 is pen, is, is nothing. It's right. breadcrumbs compared to what, uh, right. and, what they're going to be. And
0: working. if you think of genetic genetic factors, so like take deafness. When the parents are deaf, they get tested when they're, they're a baby. Right. So you know and you can start doing the you know, training and signing right away exactly instead of right. waiting. So if the same thing can be done for – a parent who knows they already have a already knows they have adhd
2: mm-hmm.
0: it would be really cost effective and it's very true. wonderful it's,
2: it's very true especially when we start thinking about um you know obviously genetic uh, influence in, right uh, kids who have adhd and 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 how that is predictive a lot of times of, of increased likelihood for for kids to be diagnosed right. with adhd as well um um, but yeah, I mean, the key is is early intervention. I mean, that's the key with everything at this point. A lot of the research that I've been reading lately is trying to figure out mechanisms or why certain um, diagnoses are actually manifesting. What are, those, what are those components that are leading to that? And if we can find them out fairly early, um, we can save, and it's not just a money thing, right? I mean, we're also talking about real human beings here, right? Well,
0: so if you were to work with a, a doctor... Mm-hmm. Um, because if we start there, mm-hmm. um, what what kind of tips could you give that doctor on um, what to ask, what to do? You know how to, how to make sure they're getting to this issue.
2: Yeah, it's it's hard, right? Okay. Because um, a lot of times, doctor's office visits are set up much differently than a clinical psych visit um, in terms of time. Particularly, that's the number one piece, and, right. and so a lot of times I've had you know families come in and, and kids have received diagnoses of ADHD from a rate from a single rating scale that a parent has filled out, and really you know if you look at the DSM, the diagnostic manual, um, there's more that goes into it than just a parent letting you know that there are some symptoms going on. Right. You need to get information about what's going on also outside of the home. That's right. very very important. Yes. Um, so, so you know, if, if I was talking to a physician, I would say if it were possible to maybe provide parents um, with some of these measures before they actually come to the visit, so they could share them with a teacher, So right. they could share them with someone. So you have a little bit more information um, that could help in terms of validity of diagnosis. I, um, I would, I wouldn't be able to convince um, a physician to be able to sit with a kid and and do any of these tests, but. Um, but I – and I think a lot of physicians are doing this – if there are concerns, referring to a clinical psychologist or a neuropsychologist to do that testing is very important before we sort of slap a diagnosis on somebody and start um, and start providing them with some sort of intervention.
0: Right, right. So
2: linking up with, with a professional in that particular domain of testing would be very beneficial for a physician as well. So those are just – Folks are, generally folks are doing a lot of that as it is. Right. Um, but um, those are some really broad tips that I think could be helpful.
0: Okay. And is there anything else that you want to add that I haven't asked about?
2: Like I mentioned, I've dedicated a lot of time to learning more about this disorder, and I foresee my future being dedicated to learning more about uh, ADHD. And this is, again, this is a huge honor.
1: This is wonderful. I Thank wait.
2: you so much. Perfect. Thank you for having me.
1: To minimize the effects of ADHD-related impulsivity, get rest. Ideal for schools, therapists' offices, and homes. Learn more about REST at restbygate.com or call toll-free 844-264-REST. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of ADHD 365. Be sure to check out Chad's other podcasts, All Things ADHD and Ask the Expert. Stay up to date on the latest ADHD information by connecting to our social media page at chad.org slash social, where you can link to all our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube.